All right, so last week, Ken was talking to us pretty much uh, introducing the age of the pseudo-king. It's the king that wasn't a king, but acted like a king, even though he said he wasn't. He was like, nah, I'm a king, but I'm not, but I'll take all the things and do the stuff, right? So it was the age of the king that wasn't. And following Gideon and Abimelech, we're coming up to, we're going to come up to Jephthah who is the next pseudo-king. But before we get there, uh, let's, let's see where we're going to be today. So here we are. Here's our map. We've seen the map a couple times. It's in our, in our notebooks. We're going to be on the east side of the Jordan today, uh, primarily. Jephthah is going to be right there where uh, the word Ammonites is because the Ammonites are going to be who our main adversary is today. But above him, we're going to have Jair. And on the west side of the, uh, of the map, we've got Tola. We're going to briefly stop by those two guys. But look on the west and south side, we're going to see uh, Philistia. And that is going to be another uh, one of our antagonists for today. And look at where they are. And we're going to see how they end up where Jephthah is today. So let's read. We're going to be in chapter 10 of the book of Judges today. Let's read uh, verses 1 through 5 together. And after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, the man of Issachar. And he lived at Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shemir. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth-Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried at Cammon. So why are Tola and Jair even in this book? You know, why, why are they in here? Kind of like Shamgar's in here, like some of the other minor judges. What, what in the world is the point? I think the, the Lord has included this and in that the... Uh, the author of Judges included this to show us and kind of set us up for Jephthah. We're beginning our fifth cycle in the book of Judges, our fifth deliverance cycle. And what we're seeing is Israel was kind of in a, in a sweet spot. They had 45 years of decent leadership, comfort, security, and peace, right? But as we're going to see today, like in all the times before, we've had seven weeks of this so far, week eight. Here we are. Israel's in the same place. They're no closer to God, regardless of how much peace they've had. They're no closer to Yahweh than they were before Abimelech. And see, I think they got here through comfort and complacency. And that, that's kind of what, it, in our lives, how we can relate back to Israel 3,000 years ago. Comfort breeds complacency, breeds searching after other things besides God for our fulfill, for fulfillment. That's a word that I can say. The essence of idolatry, uh, according to Warren Wiersbe, and you've got this quote in your notes, the essence of idolatry is enjoying God's gifts but not being grateful to the giver. And Israel was guilty. I mean, that, that's so true. Whenever you stop realizing which hand is giving you the food, 
you, you stop being grateful to, to that hand, and you start looking after all the other things. And that's Israel today. Here we are in the land of Gilead. I want to point Gilead at because Gilead isn't a tribe per se. Gilead is, in the, is over the land of Gad pretty much where the tribe of Gad was, but it's also a little bit into southern Manasseh and a little bit into northern Reuben. So we're on the east side of the Jordan. If you see it in your Bibles normally, they're the Transjordanian tribes. They're the ones on the other side of the promised land. So geographically, here we are. But chronologically, I want to bring us up to speed where we're at. We're about 60 years from the beginning of King Saul's reign. And we're about 100 years from King David's reign. So that, that's where we are at this point. The, the author is dragging us along until the age of the kings. So after 45 years of peace, 45 years of comfort, 45 years probably of prosperity, there's a growing attachment to the things that they've accumulated, the land that they've been placed in. And what we're seeing is they decide that they need a lasting savior. We've seen that in the last two guys, the last two pseudo-kings. The cry has been, rule over us. We need somebody like everybody else has got to ensure that we are safe. And so in an effort to preserve that safety and prosperity, not only do they look for a, a kingly dynasty, but they look for a new religion. And that new religion is going to be all the religions. See, the, going to verse 6 of chapter 10, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. We see this again. It's a, the fifth go-around. The people of Israel are doing evil. And again, like this isn't the, necessarily the, the, the moral evil outside of abandonment of Yahweh worship. If we get nothing out of this whole series, know that putting anything above worshiping the one true God is evil in the sight of the Lord. Right? That, that's the common theme throughout Judges. The way that Israel is falling, it's always a matter of their hearts. It's always, where, where is their heart? If their heart is with the Lord, they're not doing evil in the sight of the Lord. But if their heart is far from the Lord, or their heart is given the Lord's second place, then they've been doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And they also worship the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Why does the author go through this huge list of, of idolatry? Why, why does the author go through the trouble? Why didn't he just say, and they worshiped many other gods? I think the author of Judges is making a point. I think he's saying, look at the utter apostasy of the Israelite people. And I think the book of Judges was written uh, about the time of, of the kings, like Saul or David. And I think it was written primarily to remind the, the kings 
where his people have come from. Remind the king where his people have come from and to remind the people of what good and bad kingly leadership kind of looks like. It's like, we've been here. We've done that. That has been an utter failure. This is our warning. The book of Judges is the nation of Israel's warning. But also the book of Judges is a wonderful picture of the nature and character of God and his merciful kindness. See, David Guzik says, The people of God are always in danger of worshiping what the world worships. When a man stops believing in God, he does not believe in nothing. He believes in anything. Man, we see this all the time. Most people don't go from being religious people to being just straight atheists. They believe in something, whether it's Eastern mysticism, whether it's secular humanism. They're putting their faith and trust in something, whether it's good luck or karma. And we put our faith in all sorts of things, and we mix these things into our faith. I mean, Christianity, look at the spectrum. There's all sorts of different ways of practicing Christianity because a lot of different denominations, a lot of different uh, peoples have put all different kinds of outside forces on our own religion. And when we stop putting God as number one, we start adding in all the other things. We end up, and what we're going to see is that pragmatism is probably going to rule the day more than their faith. This reminded me of the fall in Genesis uh, 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Guys, Adam and Eve were the first ones to buy what the world was selling. And then since Genesis 3, that has been the story of humanity. We always want to buy Whatever the world says sounds good, looks good, tastes good, feels good. I think that's going to be okay. You know, God made it. Of course it's okay. But uh, Neil Postman says, I love this quote in uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. This is a, a book that's a secular book. And in this particular part of the secular book, he's just talking about how how TV even affects our worship. And this is in the 80s, how TV affects our worship. Can you imagine if you had Netflix? (laughs) Spiritual devastation is more likely to occur with an enemy with a smile on his face than one with a countenance that that exudes suspicion and hate. Guys, Adam and Eve saw the fruit and saw that it was good. They saw that it was good for knowledge of good and evil. They saw that it probably tasted good. They're like, you know what? I'm going to start defining good on my terms. That's what Adam and Eve were doing. And I think that's what the people of Israel are doing in chapter 10 of the book of Judges. They've started defining good on their own terms. They've seen what is good in the people around them, and they're like, yeah, that's something that I want to do. You know, it's not going to hurt if I put the bail statue in my store. At least they won't shut down my business. You know, it, it's fine. As long as I just rub the share a pole a little bit, maybe my, my daughter will get pregnant. 
Maybe my wife will get pregnant. It doesn't hurt, right? Maybe it's a little superstitious, but it, it won't hurt. Guys, the outside pragmatism is what ended up bringing spiritual devastation. They thought they knew better than God. So our cycle begins. Sin leads to suffering, which leads to sorrow. This is the fifth iteration. It should be a familiar pattern now. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Guys, can I say, like, I hope that is never written down in any book about me. (laughs) Was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. Guys, we see this language of commerce again. And who's the one doing the selling? Who's the one doing the giving? It's always God. This is always Yahweh's battle. It's always Yahweh's control. God is the one. The one true God is going to sell his people to a, sub, to a sub-God, to a lower king. One that is not going to uh, be the same as him. Notice every time that it's a giving, it's always God that's giving. It's always God who's the gracious gift giver, the merciful gift giver. And for 18 years, they oppressed the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Guys, for 18 years, I can imagine that they've been going to the gods of the Ammonites and the Sidonians and the Philistines and Moabites. Like, they've been going to all these other gods. And they're like, well, maybe we can try Yahweh again. Maybe he'll have something to say. See, this is kind of a warning to us not to get cocky or complacent. Because when we get complacent, we're going to start thinking we know something. And when we start thinking we know something, we start putting those ideas to action. And so because of that, Israel is crushed. The Hebrew word is shattered. Like, I love the, the imagery that comes with a lot of the language in the Bible because it so clearly defines what is going on. Like shattering. God is saying, all right, people, we're going to have to break this and start, start over. And not only are they shattered, they're shattered by the people they've already conquered. Go back and look at Joshua. Look at Ehud. Look at Shamgar. Shamgar with his ox goad killing 600 Philistines. He gets one verse in the Bible doing some cool ninja stuff. And all that goes to waste. Because here the Philistines are back on the, on the door. He's, Shamgar's rolling over in his grave saying, well, what did I do all that for? Uh, you know? I spent all that time in ninja school for nothing. <laughs> so in Israel's distress, they finally plead out to, to God to make it stop. All right. So for 18 years, they've been talking to these deaf and dumb idols. They've been going back to them for 18 years. I mean, we can relate to that, right? We go to the thing that we think is going to give us comfort, going to give us security, and we go back to it. And if it doesn't give us the comfort and security that we want, we go back to it again. And then we go back to it again. And then we go back to it again. Till 20 years down the road, we're like, maybe it doesn't work. 
So then we, they finally go to Yahweh. And guess what? Yahweh speaks. And this is what he has to say. Verses 11 through 14. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? Seems really familiar. The Sidonians also, the Amalekites and the Manites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. You're so smart. Go to those, go to those folks. Let them save you in the time of your distress. See how good of a savior Baal is. Go ask Kamash. Go ask the Asherah to protect you in your time of distress. Can you imagine the utter devastation of the people of Israel at this point? Can you imagine who was, whoever received that message from the Lord and had to pass that on? Whether it, was the high, whether it was a high priest or whether it was a prophet, whomever it was, they got this message from God to give to the people of Israel. And turns out, the one God who does speak doesn't have good news for them. See, God points out their true loyalties and the futility of their apostasy. They already know the stuff doesn't work, and now the God of the universe is saying, hey guys, go back to that stuff that you've chosen. See, God is patient with Israel's deliverance until they are sick of their sin. And guys, I, I can relate to this in the sense that I remember a couple times in my life when I've had to go and confess like sin to my wife that was deeply hurtful to her and deeply embarrassing to me. I think most of you guys know that kind of, uh, those kinds of things that, would be hurting, hurtful to your wife in that way. And, you know, the first time it was painful when I had to tell her, I've been looking at some stuff I hadn't been looking at, and it's not good. First time it was painful. I was like, oh, gosh, that hurt. Man, I don't want to do that again. Man, that was, that was just painful. But it wasn't until the second time that I was shattered. It hurts so bad, dishonoring my wife, being unfaithful in the way that was like a, you know, unthinkable to her. It wasn't until then, until I was sick of my sin, that it was hurting my marriage, it was hurting my, my kids, it was hurting my soul. It wasn't until I was sick of it, until finally I was said, you know, the goodness of God's plan, God's design, is better than the ideas and the desires of my heart. See, the idol is always going to look to tear us down. The idol is always going to look to shatter us. It's going to leave us with an insatiable appetite that can never be fulfilled. It's always going to leave us wanting more. But God... In his kindness, in his, in his mercy, always seeks to build us up, to grow us, 
He's already made us in his image. Now he's growing us in his likeness. If we'll just get out of the way. Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount is talking about commenting on the Ten Commandments. And in uh, chapter 6, verses 19 through 25, he's pretty much commenting on the first four commandments. You know, I am the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. Don't use my name in vain. Jesus is explaining what Yahweh worship looks like. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Like, that's true. The world says you can worship everything and it's okay. It's a big hula hoop. Come on, bring it in. As long as it doesn't mess with anything else in the hula hoop, like, we're fine with you. But God's a one-person hula hoop kind of God. With God, loving the world is hating God. Loving the world is doing evil in his sight. It's not just doing something different. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which if you haven't read it before, it will bless your soul and challenge your faith. Our treasure on earth may, of course, be small and inconspicuous. It can just be a matter of the mind, a matter of the desire. But size is immaterial. It all depends on the heart, on ourselves. And if we ask how we are to know where our hearts are, the answer is just as simple. Everything which hinders us from loving God above all things and acts as a barrier between ourselves and our obedience to Jesus is our treasure and the place where our heart is. Guys, it's always, it's always about the heart. Our heart's desires are always going to be fleshed out in our behavior. Our heart's desires are always going to be fleshed out in our interests. And it doesn't take much to crack the door. Moving on to verses 15 and 16, chapter 10. So I believe from the time that God rebuked Israel, there was a little bit of time before Israel got a chance to respond back. You know, they had the devastating news of what, Gawai, what Yahweh has said. And now they've had to think on it. They've had to despair about it. They've had to grieve over what the one God who speaks actually said. And I think maybe a year later, maybe a few months later, maybe a few days later, the people of Israel have got, gotten the message to a point, and the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Now that sounds familiar. They've said that before. But what's different? Do to us whatever seems good to you. And that's a change. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. See, his patience and deliverance is his merciful kindness to draw us to true discipleship. God was patient in delivering me from my sin until it hurt bad enough that I was willing to give it up. I was willing 
to stop having that desire. Now, does that mean the temptation ever goes away? No, the temptation is around me at all times. Everywhere you look, there's an attractive thing out there that's desiring to pull my heart and my eyes off Jesus. Sometimes we, we, are, we get the picture, we are smart enough, we finally grasp it, and we repent before the Lord has to do this. But oftentimes, we don't come to the point of repentance, this point of do whatever seems good to you until he's taken us to the bottom. So what does true discipleship really mean? I think this passage kind of points it out. It says, when we follow Jesus, regardless of our circumstances, that's that do whatever. No matter what my circumstances, I'm going to follow you. You do your thing. It doesn't matter how it, what the outcome is. I choose you. True discipleship is when we realize that we are rich with God, even when we are poor in life. And the strictness of Yahweh rule, that high bar of morality and standards, is infinitely better than the, licentious, the licentiousness of superstitious idolatry. Guys, we are superstitious people, and we think that whatever seems good to me is a good idea, but instead of seeing what is good, what seems good to God. So do whatever seems good to you, regardless of the circumstances. I finally, I choose to follow you. Do what you want. That's what it means to truly follow Jesus in discipleship. That's what it truly means to follow Yahweh in discipleship. True discipleship is found when there is nothing between ourselves and Christ. Remember that little thing that, that cracks the door. It doesn't, size is immaterial. For them, they finally came to the point. This is why I think it took a while, because they had to come to a consensus that they were going to put away the idols. So they finally, in their humility and repentance, put away the thing that came between them. And true discipleship is when we trade the temporary self for the eternal Jesus. They finally decided they weren't going to serve the Baals anymore. They weren't going to serve the gods of Sidonians anymore. They were going to serve Yahweh this time. So because of that, they, they realized, okay, we've repented. We're back to Yahweh. Now what? Well, we still need border security. We still, you know, need to protect our businesses. We need to protect our land. Like, so thus begins the misguided search for a savior. Because though they've come to Yahweh, they still don't really know Yahweh very well. Going to verse 18, the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped at Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mitzpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. See, God placed in humanity the need for a savior. It's in all of us. Whether it's savior from our boredom, savior from financial ruin, savior from a, an invading country, like God is always p putting in us the, the knowledge that we are finite and need protection from somebody or something. 
And in God's wisdom, for some reason, he uses imperfect men to do that. God uses people like you. God uses people like me. God uses people that aren't perfect. Hey, if you haven't realized that, like, none of us are perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Ken's definitely not perfect. <laughs> nobody, nobody in this room is perfect, yet God, because he's made you a man who is following Christ, he is going to use you if you'll let him. And why does he use men? I think he's using men, particularly to make godly men, so that godly leaders will point back to him. So we have an earthly representation in God's, in God's orderliness. He wants to show us that what God's leadership looks like. God's nature and character of leadership and headship shows us what perfect leadership looks like. And so when we represent God with good, godly leadership, we are pointing the world back to him because we're representing a good characteristic of God. But he also teaches us through being godly men how to love people and to be humble because there's no way we can love others. There's no way we can be godly leaders. There's no way we can be biblically, biblical men without God's help. Like, there's no way we can lead anybody. We can't lead ourselves out of a paper bag on our own. So we recognize that we need God's help. And most importantly, I think God uses men to encourage our faith. I think he uses us so that when we see him at work and we meet him at, in his work, our faith grows and so does the faith of the people around us. God in his wisdom, God in his kindness, chooses to use us imperfect people in our humility and in his love to show his awesomeness. He puts himself on display when we follow him in the right way. And when the world sees that this imperfect guy did something, it wasn't because of me, it was because of who was behind me. But instead of looking at the way God chooses men, Israel goes back to how the nations choose men. And they look to them for their example and conclude, like Ken was bringing up last week, that a kingly lineage, a dynasty, is what will bring lasting peace. And in common ancient Near East practice, uh, what they look for is someone that will be their military governor. So what, how it worked back then was there were tribes all over the place, kind of disparate. There weren't, wasn't necessarily the big nation states, particularly at this point in history. There aren't a lot of empires in the area at the time. There's just tribes and people groups. Like so what would happen is tribes would band together, find a strong man, and say, we'll give our, our loyalty to you if you protect us. Kind of a, a military governor. He wasn't in charge of the tribe or the multiple tribes that he protected. He just was their protector in exchange for whatever, their loyalty, their money, whatever it was. So thus enters Jephthah. Going in uh, to chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, let's read it. 
Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. And for us, we're like, whoa, that's, you know, that's a pretty big deal. For them, it kind of wasn't that big of a deal. Like there were temple prostitutes all over the place. And the biggest point I want to make about that is that that didn't take away his part of the inheritance. It didn't make, though he was like an illegitimate son, he wasn't that illegitimate that he was outside of the family. Does that make sense? So that, that brings us into why he got exiled. So he, they, his brother sent him out to the land of Tob, which is northeast of Gilead, like outside of Gilead, way up into pretty much Syria, modern day Syria. And they kick him out because that frees up a big chunk of inheritance. Jephthah was probably the firstborn because that's a pretty good reason. Two-thirds of the inheritance went to the firstborn. That's a pretty good reason to kick a guy out. I mean, he freed up a lot of cash flow, a lot of land. And he's known as a mighty warrior. But notice the contrast between this instance of being called a mighty warrior and how Gideon was called a mighty warrior. Who called Gideon a mighty warrior? It was Yahweh. Yahweh looked at some weakling and he said, you are a mighty warrior. And Gideon was shocked. He said, who, me? I'm not a mighty warrior. But in this case, in the search for a savior, Israel says, we know you're a mighty warrior. Jephthah was a, a big dude. He had, some, he had some worthless fellows hanging around him, i.e. some thugs. I mean, the guy had to survive, so thug life was, what, was how he rolled. He said, me and, me and my guys, we're going to roll around, we're going to do what we want, and we're going to get some money, maybe we'll protect some people. Maybe he was like a Robin Hood, I don't know. But one way or another, he was going to survive, and he made a reputation as a mighty warrior as a strong man. So these empty guys, just to kind of show you the the connotation of the people that were around him, it says worthless fellows, but it's the same kind of worthless fellows that Abimelech's worthless fellows were. So these weren't like nice, nice guys. They weren't just a bunch of, you know, easygoing militia folks. Like these were straight up thugs. Moving on to verses uh, 5 and 6. When the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. This is uh, the Gileadites saying, Come and be our military governor. That's uh, what that, the implication of that word leader means. It's, it's katsin. And it means protector, commander, our captain. Be, be the guy that you know, we go to when we need something. And what we easily see is that the elders don't necessarily want Jephthah. They just want what he can do for them. Like, he's a strong man. He can do for something for us. Let's go get him, you know? 
How often do we treat relationships like that? I'll be your friend as long as you got, there's something in it for me. How often do we treat our wives like that? I'll take you out to dinner, honey, as long as there's something in it for me. I'll do the laundry. I'll, ta- I'll take you to softball practice, my lovely daughter. But you better love me and put me in a good home. It reminds me uh, when I was uh, in the uh, when when I was in the army. I, for a while, I was a logistics planner, and that was every relationship that I had. All right, it was, can you make something disappear off the books, or can you make something appear in my hands? And if you can't do either one of those things, then I don't really need to know who you are. And there was a time of a couple years there where that was literally all my relationships professionally that I had. And guys, we, we do that in our relationships all the time. We don't want the man. We, we just want what the man can do for us. We don't want God. Because God is, you know, he has like standards and stuff. We just want what he can do for us. You know, let, let, me, let me be in charge and just kind of fill in the gaps, please, will you? Notice that is the same thing they, they said to God. He said, we'll do whatever, just help us. See, Gilead knows, or at least they're going to learn, that rescue is going to come with rule. I think that is kind of the overall uh, theme of these couple chapters in, in the book of Judges, is that whomever we go to for rescue is going to be what rules us. So let's see Jephthah's response to the elders. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Do you, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, and Yahweh gives them over to me, I will be your head. Did you notice the change in language? It's no coincidence that it said leader before and head now. Head was the Hebrew word. It meant literally like the crown of the head. So what Jephthah has just negotiated Instead of just being their military protector, he has negotiated dictatorship for life. He was head over the elders now. He was head over the military. He was head over all things Gilead. He was the man, and the elders said, okay. See, rescue comes with rule, and that's true for whatever we put our hope in. Whether we seek refuge in our sin, whether we're seeking it, in, in uh, neglecting our families for the sake of work, or we're seeking it in the, the quiet, private comfort of pornography, whether we seek it in our distractions and entertainment, whatever we seek our daily rescue in, and it's not just overarching, it's the daily, hourly, well, whatever we seek our refuge in, that is what's going to rule us. But, there's a positive side. 
If we put that effort into the Lord our God, we get God's rule. And haven't we seen already that God is kind? At no point do we see, does God raise up the deliverer. Just like Abimelech, this is the people's choice. But, unlike Abimelech, in God's sovereignty this time, the people's choice acknowledges Yahweh as the deliverer. He says, if Yahweh delivers us, then I'll be your head. And I think this is exactly where Jephthah makes the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. I think it's, even though his faith, and as we'll find out next week with Ken, his faith is ah, like minuscule. Like his knowledge of who God is and what God is like is tiny. But he acknowledges that Yahweh is the one true God. He is willing to make that bet. Sure, I'll go fight them. No problem. As long as you make me head. Because I have confidence that Yahweh is going to deliver. And so therefore, Israel gets what they deserve. Right? And I think this is the point, like I've mentioned, of Judges. Like when, whenever we're seeking out those things that are less than God, we're going to get less than God. So God's going to use this unlikely deliverer as the imperfect picture of his sovereign deliverance. Instead of the everlasting God as the king of peace, who will bring generation after generation after generation of peace and prosperity, they get Jephthah, a finite dude who's just a strong man and a good politician. See, even the best of the kings of Israel as you look ahead to First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, even the best ones demonstrate that there is no king like the King of Kings. And the whole book of Judges, just like the rest of the, New, the Old Testament, is pointing ahead to Jesus. Only the Messiah is going to be our perfect deliverer. Only God Himself can rescue His people adequately. So then Jephthah tries diplomacy first, and I'm not going to read the whole uh, exchange between him and the king of Ammon, but he essentially writes to Ammon and says, why are you attacking us? And Ammon responds back saying, hey guys, y'all stole this like 300 years ago, give it back, referring to the land. So then Jephthah replies and gives him a long history of lesson of how that's kind of revisionist history. So actually we didn't steal it from you. We beat, God gave us this land from the Amorites who beat you. So it was the Amorites who beat you, and we just beat them. So you got a little bit, you're, you got your history wrong. So let's pick it up in verse 11. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? It was God that gave it. Will you not possess whatever Kamash your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, and Erewer and its villages, and all the cities along the banks of the Arnon, for 300 years, 
why did you not recover them in that time? I said, bro, you had 300 years to get this stuff back. It hadn't happened yet. This is clearly legal. Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you have wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, may Yahweh, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. So in recounting numbers in Deuteronomy and Joshua and the beginning of Judges, Jephthah just sarcastically argues the same thing to Ammon, that God had replied to Israel. Remember, go back to your deaf, dumb God and see if that God will give you this land. If that God will protect you. If that God will save you and give you peace. Because the, la- the common law of land possession back then was you, where you were at, God gave that to you. The king of Ammon understood that more than we understand that, I think. That this was always a supernatural battle. The two parties knew that it was always going to be whoever had the strongest God gave the land. That's who gave victory in battle. And we find out, and Jephthah believes that it is God that gives and God that saves, not Kamash. So Ammon's revisionist history is uncovered as a fight against Yahweh and not Israel. That's for our benefit. We get to look into history and see that this actually was that spiritual battle and that Ammon was coming against Yahweh and Ammon was ignorant enough to think Kamash was better. But ultimately, Jephthah is correct. The Lord, he is the judge. It's Yahweh. And what we're going to see is if we believe that God is king, we need to let him rule. Because our rescue is going to come with his rule. If we seek our rescue in some, anything else's rule, we're going to get the rule from that thing, and it's going to be less than what God has to offer, which is peace with him. The one true God who actually speaks. So we're going to go into our discussion questions, but before we go into it, I want to offer one kind of pastoral uh, note. I kind of want to train you guys, like I've been training your table shepherds for the last couple years, and that's on caring for one another. Uh, I realize that we don't really uh, build you guys up as much in that way. Um, At the tables, I I just want to remind us and really put it in perspective that our tables are a place of of discussing the questions, but it's beyond that. It's a place where we can come together and work on our hearts. So let it be a place of grace. There are very few of us that are in just blatant, unrepentant sin that need the admonishment. You know, if that's the case, feel free to admonish. Use your discernment and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. But most of us typically just kind of need encouragement or help. We don't really need fixing. A lot of, we, we have a tendency to fix if I've ever sat at one of your tables, I've, I'm guilty number one. All right? Spend this time this morning encouraging and helping our brothers, not out offering a lot of advice, but caring for our brothers with prayer and concern. You know, that, that's a wonderful joy and a privilege we have of meeting together. And it's a place where we can offer the grace and the patience of our Lord. All right? So here's our discussion questions. What specifically does it mean for you to humbly accept that God's rescue comes with his rule? And what do you need God's help with to be a true disciple? And also the second question, do you want God 
or just what God gives you? All right, what are you going to meditate on to remind you that God is better than the things? All right, so Father, thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word and see your nature and character. And God, thank you for being our rescuer. Thank you for being the king. Help us to treat you as such. God, please bless the time around the tables in your name. Amen.